0: This is Democracy,
1: a podcast about the people of the United States, a podcast about citizenship, about engaging with politics
0: and the world around you,
2: a podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues
0: and how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. This week is is a real special treat. We're joined by someone who I've gotten to know a little bit in the last few weeks and She is, I think, one of the most exciting, interesting, and unique democracy activists in our society today. This is uh, Alison Gill. Uh, Welcome Alison.
2: Thank you so much, Jeremy. It's nice to be here.
0: Allison is a veteran. She's a PhD. She's a former government executive, we'll talk about that, a comedian and author. And as she says uh, on her uh, website, uh, she's a staunch advocate for democratic resistance. We're going to talk about what that means. Uh, Her mission uh, is to expose and I think inform uh, a wider audience about what's really happening in our democracy. She's, She's the executive producer and host of a number of podcasts. My favorite, uh, because of the title and the subject matter, Muller, she wrote, as <laughs> in Robert Muller, she wrote. And it's a podcast that employs expertise, insights, and absurdity <laughs> to expose <laughs> Trump, Republican corruption, and particularly connections between Trump, Trump supporters, and the Russian government. And there's more and more evidence of that every day, in addition to evidence of other authoritarian abuses of power by Trump and his supporters. Al- Allison is dedicated to really exposing the misuse of information and informing the public about facts and theory rather than uh, mishegas and disinformation and propaganda. Truth is her goal and facts are her tools. And I really encourage listeners uh, to go to her podcasts. Muller, she wrote, is my favorite. The Daily Beans is fantastic. And and I think she has like 6,000 other podcasts uh, (laughs) she's doing. Uh, I don't know how you do it, Allison. We're, We're so... Really uh, happy that you're able to spend a few minutes with us today.
2: Yeah, no, I'm I'm really glad to be here. I'm glad to talk to your audience.
0: So before we turn to our discussion with Allison, uh, we have, of course, Mr. Zachary's uh, scene setting poem for our episode this week as always. Uh, what's the title of your episodes of your of your poem, Zachary? <laughs> Micha Mocha. Micha Mocha, we're doing a little Hebrew. I love it. Go ahead. Where were
1: we that time when we were walking by the sea? It was bright, and a seagull came swooping low between our heads, like it wanted to snatch the love from inside our uneven hearts. Our hands within each other's were broken, our elbows cut and cracked with salt. We walked down on a boardwalk and turned our backs to the sea, watching the plains descend towards a city forty years across the land. Where was it then, my love, do you remember? Quite some time has passed since you held my hand on that bench in front of the sea, and a butterfly almost hit the railing of the promenade, wings weary of following our ill-fated stars. You held my hand, and we stared up sweetly at the sunset, for by then it was almost dark, until you began to laugh, and I laughed too, and that night we drank honey and wine and left our suitcases empty for the next four hundred thirty
0: years of bitterness. Your poem, Zachary, evokes uh, so many different images uh, of society and struggle. What what is your poem really about? My poem is about those moments after a great trial,
1: after a harrowing experience, uh, after a a metaphorical parting of the sea, when it really feels like the world might and possibly could be right again. Uh, But... But also this realization that there's so much work to be done, so many more tears to be shed, and 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 so much, so much more that has to be done before we can finally reach freedom.
0: And and are you hopeful about that? Uh, I think I am, but I think it's always a bitter journey. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, in that context, as we think about the long journey to justice and democracy, whatever that uh, is, uh, Allison, your your life has has in many ways. Been about this, it seems to me, whether you wanted that or not.
2: <laughs> yeah, I had about uh, twelve different images uh, in my head that flashed there. There was the pandemic insurrection, uh, some of the things that uh, I've been through. That was uh, that was really incredible. Uh,
0: so, so Allison, just to uh, get our audience a, a better sense of, of what you've been through and how it's uh, shaped you and, and shaped the work you do uh maybe if we go back to your experience in the navy and um if if, if you can talk about that a bit and, and why you left the navy
2: yeah yeah sure i joined the navy in it was 1994 uh i had uh run out of college money you know first time college <laughs> uh and um my my father who had passed away due to uh, exposure to agent orange uh, eventual, um illnesses connected with his exposure to Agent Orange in Vietnam. Uh and he left me a little bit of money, a little bit of modest amount of money to go to college, blew through that. Uh, Then I tried to be an actress for about six minutes and said, this isn't working. So uh I joined the Navy and um, you know, because my dad was in the Air Force, my grandpa was in the Navy, his brother was in the Navy. We, you know, we have a long history. And uh and it's not an option to not go to college in my family. So I joined uh, joined the Navy, and I was one of the first women back into the nuclear program. Uh, the, you know, women were allowed in, in for one year in 1979, and then they stopped it and then brought them back in 94 to be able to enroll at Naval Nuclear Power Training Command, which is one of the more difficult, if not the most difficult schools. It's got the highest attrition rate in the military, at least. Uh, very difficult school to get through. Uh, But I made it in and uh, arrived uh, on base. It was me and a couple of other women and about 600 men, and they were not happy to see us. (laughs) So um, they had to start taking sexual harassment training, sensitivity training. They had to change their parlance. You know, a lot of engineering parlance uh, is mm, sexual and dirty (laughs) in nature, and um, a lot of the names that they had for women and things like that. So they they, they already didn't like us. But I was only there for a few short months when uh, I was out at a, after we graduated or close to being graduated from A school, uh, I was a machinist mate, went to machinist mate A school before power school in Orlando at NNPTC, Naval Nuclear Power Training Command. I went to a party. It's the first one I was invited to. Uh, I was like, hmm. oh, cool. They like me. You really like me. I felt like. <laughs> I felt How like old so were you real. at the time? I was nineteen. No, 19. I was twenty at the time. Mm-hmm. Oh. And uh, well, I had a, actually a little bit of a delay getting into school. Um, after boot camp, I was in the transient personnel unit for about five months, uh, and so I think I actually turned twenty-one right before I got there. So, gotcha. I arrive. We're at the barracks. We're at a party. We're having drinks. And uh, there was a guy there who was flirting with me and, uh, you know, we're all wearing our dungarees, which are the high-waisted bell-bottom jeans (laughs) and uh, denim button-up shirts with your name stenciled on the front. And uh, things started to get very hazy for me. I didn't, uh, I didn't, I sort of lost track of time, woke up uh, at about four in the morning and, uh, I was in considerable pain. Uh, I was not dressed. I couldn't find my clothes. And there was, uh, another sailor, one of my, uh, actually, no, I think it was an army guy next to me. Cause we, we shared the base with the army and, uh, I sat up and I said, uh, I noticed I was bleeding and I said, uh, I, I don't think I wanted to do that. And he looked at me and said, Oh, are you, are you going to cry rape now? And so I looked for my clothes and he I, I asked where they were. He laughed at me. I just grabbed a blanket, one of those uh, wool blankets from the Navy made in Terre Haute, Indiana, I remember, wrapped it around myself and left. And between the barracks where I was at and my barracks was the the police station, which were called... Um, MPs and master at arms in the military. And I I stopped in there and I went up to the window. They were behind plexiglass, you know, uh, and it's typical military building, painted brick walls, waxed, probably asbestos flooring. And I said to the person, I think that I was raped. And they led me down a hallway to a room where they sat me down and it it was an interrogation room one of those metal pendant lights uh, and it was sort of flickering and then there was this metal desk and uh, someone came in, started asking me questions. Uh, They asked me what I was wearing, if I was drinking, if I was married, or if I had a boyfriend and if we were in a fight. Uh, They asked me if I was flirting with this person who I'm alleging raped me. Uh, And mind you, I'm not dressed, I'm bleeding and I'm in a lot of pain. And uh, after that interrogation was over, somebody else came in and started asking, started they started telling me the the dangers of filing a false rape report. They said, you know, if you file a false rape report, you could be um, you could get in a lot of trouble. You could be uh, for lying. You could be court marshaled. Um, and I, I I said, well, what 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 on what charge? And they said, well, this person you're accusing. Of raping you is married. So you would be charged with adultery because he was married. And I would then be dishonorably discharged. I would lose my signing bonus, my rate, my rank. I could be struck down. Uh, I could lose all my benefits, healthcare, et cetera. And so then they looked at me and said, so, you know, why don't we just chalk this up to what it is? This was a bad decision on your part. You're if- kidding
0: me. That they they This is just hours after the occurrence. They're pressuring you just to drop it all.
2: Yeah. A hundred percent. And, uh, I believed them. I said, yeah, you know what? I, I just made a bad choice. I shouldn't have been there. Shouldn't have been drinking. Shouldn't have flirted with anyone. And I believed it in the core of my soul. And then, and then I was scared to tell anybody about it because I thought I would lose my school. It's very prestigious school. I thought I could lose being in the Navy. I thought, you know, if I didn't get dishonorably discharged, I could be—I could have my rate taken away. I would be an undesignated striker on a boat somewhere swabbing decks. So I didn't tell anybody. I did go to sick call that morning. Um, I got some Motrin. I told them I fell down and uh, got some Motrin. And I also had heard a rumor that if you took a, like an entire month's worth of birth control at one time, you could prevent a pregnancy from happening. Uh, and I, I just kept my mouth shut about it and put my head down and went on with my schoolwork, graduated from uh, power school with a with a 4.0, which is really hard to do. <laughs> wow. Wow. Um, but that's, you know, I, I later learned in life, that's how I cope with trauma uh, is I, I just focus. Right. And so uh, I, the way I got out of the Navy was that something terrible happened to my feet. Uh, and they said they gave me the option of having surgery or getting out of the Navy. And I, and I, you know, and I, I played it cool. I said, you know, I'm going to have to think about that. I'm really going to, I'm going to need some time to think about that. But of course I didn't need any time to think about that, but I came back to them a day or two later and and opted to, to exit the military. Hmm.
0: And and then you spent some time, uh, I guess, getting your PhD and out of government. Uh, obviously, jaded on the experience, but but then you came back into government, which is extraordinary.
2: Yeah, that was. Um, I, I I got out, got my bachelor's, got my master's, was working in hotel and restaurant management, putting together phone centers uh, for for boutique, uh, swanky hotels, <laughs> and uh, then Obama hit the scene. And um, he started to campaign for president, and he pulled the old JFK. If you remember, he said, "You know, be of service to your country. Right. Ask not what your country can do for you; we need to be of service." And I was very motivated by that, uh, but I couldn't join the military again. I had already been considered a disabled veteran, and uh, I was also old—well, uh, for Navy standards—in <laughs> the you know <laughs> in the early two thousands, uh, and so. Uh, I said, well, I'm going to try to get a job with the VA. So I applied. Uh, and it took six months to get a GS5 clerk job with an with an MBA. And once I, once I got that job, I, I started my PhD. I decided that's the career I wanted to have until I retired.
0: And um, as I understand it, I mean, you moved into doing some incredibly uh, important work uh, in California for the VA, correct?
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I created... Uh, I, I worked my way up from a GS-5 uh, to a GS-9. They put me in charge of the call center. Uh, we did a, a telecommunications redesign that, that went so well and did so well that they adopted that in other VIZNs, Veteran Integrated Service Networks across the country. Um, so I traveled a bit to to teach that to other um, health health administration services to, to deploy. Then uh, we created a, a medical... Support Assistant University, Mm -hmm. uh, and that is now used in in most of the integrated networks across the country. Um, Then I got a call up to LA. They said, hey, you did so good with the call center. Come and work up here for us. And I did. And then I wanted to move back to San Diego, and I noticed there was a job available in San Diego to work, uh, to be embedded with the Department of Defense to work for TRICARE because the VA is a TRICARE network provider. Right, right. And uh, moved back down, and uh, by that time I was a GS-14, uh, hmm. which was the uh, same as, I don't know if you remember, Lisa Page of Peter Strzok and Lisa Page fame. Sure. Uh, uh, but uh, that's that's where I ended up, and it was while I was there that um, that Donald Trump was elected, uh, if you want to, I put elected in quotes. <laughs> and um, Mueller was appointed, and I started I started a podcast about it. So,
0: so why did you start this pod- podcast? Why, why were you so um, committed to, uh, while working for government, uh, exposing and reflecting on what you saw as the misdeeds of those who were ostensibly your bosses?
2: Well, I was so fascinated by the Mueller appointment and the parallels between the Mueller appointment and Watergate. And uh, I remember uh, you know, the, the, the historical relevance of it, I thought was just massive, and I remember watching. There's an old 2013, I think, documentary from MSNBC about Watergate called "All the President's Men Revisited." Right, and uh, they, they were showing that in October of 2017 uh, on on MSNBC, and I think they were showing that because they just kind of wanted to illustrate the parallels between Watergate and the Trump Russia investigation, which we now know as Crossfire Hurricane, and. I, I sat there and I thought, you know, I bet in 20 years, 30 years, they're going to be doing documentaries <laughs> on the Mueller investigation. And I, I want to be a part of that. I thought the historical significance of this is massive, but I, I'm not a journalist. I don't have a television show. I'm, you know, I'm not on the radio and it seemed like the, uh, the way to break in was, was with a podcast. So that's, that's what I did.
0: And uh, what sort of uh, information did you dig up and, and circulate through, through your podcast? I know you had a large following very quickly, also.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, we, I think we cornered the market. I think we were the only <laughs> all Muller, all the time <laughs> yeah. show. And, um, you know, it, w- w- I recorded the first show when the first indictments dropped against Manafort and Gates. And I said, all right, here we go. This is good. This is big. This is huge. And so we, I grabbed a couple of microphones, set up on my kitchen table. And basically what I did was I would find all of the Mueller reporting in the world and I would sift through it and then I would present it in a, I would curate it sort of, I guess is the best way to, to say that. I would break it down into digestible bites. I would make it funny. Uh, and and I because I thought that it would it was very important to make it entertaining so that people would listen uh, because the Mueller report isn't jazzy you know there's not a lot of <laughs> there's not, it's it's you know it's not a bumper sticker it's not That's you right. have you have to present it in a way uh, that that people will listen and I thought it was just so important that that as many people as I could get. To follow this information and to know what's going on as it was happening, you know, in real time uh, is is that's what that's what we did.
1: What kind of problems were posed about creating a podcast about the moral corruptness of of in many ways your institutional leaders?
2: <laughs> yeah, that was the tough part, because I worked for the executive branch of the government. And that wasn't lost on me, because I actually got to take the executive oath of office, the same one that Obama took, minus the word president, on the same day he took it, January 20th, 2009, which is also my birthday. So, you know, the, the importance there wasn't lost on me. So I actually, the challenges are, you know, I mean, first of all, we have the Hatch Act, right, which, which Trump modified multiple times. Uh, to include social media, uh, and then to include his name specifically, you know, he said, "We know the Hatch Act. It says, you know, you can't campaign uh, for or against somebody running for political office." And we know Trump filed the day he was inaugurated to run again in 2020, uh, so he was, you know, you couldn't say anything. And he he went to far as as far as to say, "You can't say anything bad about Trump," uh, which is covered in the Hatch Act, but he wanted his name in there. He just wants his name on everything. And so I, I made sure that, uh, I only, I, I hired a lawyer to advise me on how not to run afoul of the Hatch Act. And, uh, I, I went by a a pseudonym. I went by my initials, A-G, and, uh, did everything that I could to, to, make sure it was in my free time and that it didn't run afoul of any ethics considerations or policies or hatch act violations or anything and and i followed i followed the letter of the law
0: and how did you for yourself and your friends how did you conceive of what you were doing as part of public service i I don't think you saw it as not public service i think you saw it as essential to your public service right so how how did you think about that
2: uh well i mean it's interesting because it wasn't until after the Mueller she wrote podcast shuddered. We went dark for a year. Uh, and you know, the last basically the last year that Bill Barr was in charge of the Justice Department. And uh, during that time, somebody had asked me, it was right around the time. you got you remember when uh, Trump called war dead and veterans suckers and losers? And-
0: yes, of course, multiple times he said
2: that. <laughs> he did. <laughs> And I, I put a tweet out that said, you know, my my, my grandpa was shot down in World War II. I, uh, Trump thinks he's a sucker. My dad succumbed to exposure to Agent Orange. I guess he's a loser. I am a disabled veteran, but I didn't lose a limb, so I can be in a parade, according to Trump, because hmm. I don't know if you remember, but he said he didn't sure. want any amputees to be in his veterans' parades, uh, because it just looks sad. Um and so, you know, I I put that tweet out, Washington Post grabbed it, it went viral. And I got a lot of questions about people asking about my my dad's exposure to Agent Orange. And so I started researching because I didn't know he was out of the Air Force before I was born and never talked about it. But I found out that he he wasn't, I thought he just went to Vietnam like a grunt sort of boots on the ground guy and was exposed to Agent Orange. But as it turns out, he was working at CUNIA and was trained at NORAD or Cheyenne Mountain. Uh, and he kind of did the war games stuff. He was part of tabletop exercises for uh, wow. preemptive nuclear strikes against Russia. And what he was doing in Vietnam was he was on Monkey Mountain. He was across enemy lines setting up communications relay station. Then he was intercepting Russian Russian communications, translating them, wow. because he spoke Russian, and then encrypting them, sending them to Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines, and then shooting them out to the you know the global communications network for the military. For SIGINT, signals intelligence, uh, and he, I looked through a bunch of letters he wrote back home to his parents, and you know he was very, again, you know, very against communism and autocracy, and he was so uh, pure in his conviction about spreading democracy and defending democracy against tyranny. And uh, I thought, wow, I guess it's, I guess it's in my DNA.
0: It certainly sounds like it, um, A- Allison. How do you respond to those conspiratorial thinkers on the right, who you know come up with all of these um, conspiracies for explaining how I don't know Antifa is setting up these stories about Russia, et cetera, and Mueller somehow was working for them, um, without yourself recreating those conspiracies on the left, on the other side. Because you're finding the secret wiring, you're fi- finding the secret motivations, and that can sound like conspiracy to some. Also,
2: oh yeah, I mean, even early on, uh, I've been dragged multiple times on on social media for for being uh, they call me uh, blue anon, or uh, you know Russia Russia Gate, or or you know the Russia hoax, and I'm spreading conspiracy theories. Uh, but, you know, uh, I guess slow and steady wins the race. We, you know, we had the Mueller report, not too many people read it. Then we had the the SSCI, the SISI Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, five volume review and counterintelligence report on the Russia investigation, which pretty much reads like a transcript of my podcast from beginning <laughs> to end. And, uh, you know, those kinds of things sort of uh, trickle in over time because, you know, the wheels of justice grind slowly. And uh, it it just sort of, I just keep going forward knowing that I was right and and what I was doing was correct. Um, And I I, I try my best not to respond to those conspiracy theories because then a lot of times all they're trying to do is get air from my reach. Do you know what I mean?
0: Yes, of course.
2: Yeah. And so I, I usually just... Either I'll, I'll debunk it publicly with documentary evidence or I'll just ignore mm-hmm. it completely. Mm-hmm.
0: And and what do you hope will come of your expo- expose work? I mean, you're, you're bringing out in the way we do as scholars also, right? You're following the evidentiary trail. You're following the breadcrumbs and you're assembling the story tirelessly. You really are tireless about this, <laughs> uh, putting it together so we can see how it all adds up. Um, beyond the the importance of simply getting the truth out there and telling the story, what do you hope will come of this for our democracy?
2: Well, I mean, I, I learned a huge lesson during my doctoral dissertation because I spent over a year on it, maybe almost two years, And I was triangulating data, and one of my data sets was corrupt, and so the best I could say was, I don't know. You know, my question (laughs) that I was trying to answer, (laughs) the answer was, and we don't really know. Uh, But I think the lesson there was the significant amount of information I added to the body of knowledge of the subject I was studying. And that is why I do what I do on this side of it as well, because... Again, justice is so it's tantric, right And I don't mean in a fun sexy way I mean in a hot yoga kind of way uh it's 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 uncomfortable and it takes a really long time but to add significant information to the body of knowledge and to map out the the unfolding of the Mueller investigation, the Russia investigation as it was happening in real time I think is is, is what I added to the conversation. Uh, and I'll, I'll continue to do that. How that helps democracy in the short term. That's, <laughs> that's a tough problem. Although I will say that once my podcast was investigated and I was removed from my job with the federal government, they did the trick, the Mick Mulvaney trick where they move your job across country. Um, but once that happened, they, they don't have second level and third level thinking. Um, these these autocrats, these, these Republicans. And I guess they didn't realize that that would free me up from the Hatch Act, which would allow me to raise money for their opponents. And we did. Um, uh, myself and a group of other podcasts, we raised about half a million dollars for Biden, Harris, and Ossoff and Warnock. And um, so, you know, they fired me, but uh, I, I fired them. So, <laughs> so uh, you know, I think that that is also, aside from the body of knowledge contribution, I think that that was another, just a financial contribution to get them out of office. Now we just have to keep them out.
0: Sure, sure. A- and do you think you're winning?
2: Oh, it's a, it's a, <laughs> it's a slog, right? Um, I didn't expect the insurrection. Um, I mean, I, I thought they would attempt it. But I didn't know that they had disabled the police force uh, at at that time and and withheld the National Guard. Um, And I know they're still investigating whether that was intentional or not. I didn't know Mike Flynn's brother was in the room when the decisions were being made. Uh, But, you know, because we we were all so high at that morning of January 6th because Ossoff had won, Warnock had won. We got the Senate. Yep. We got Joe Biden and we got Kamala Harris. And then I'm just sitting down to watch something that's never been televised before, because it's always just been this ministerial boring thing that, that the vice president does in Congress, which is to certify the Electoral College. And I'm watching it like this is the fine, this is the last thing. Uh, and then we saw what we saw. And it, it was, I have to say, and this is strong language, but it was like being raped all over again.
0: Wow. Why was it why was it so surprising to you and so painful to you?
2: Well I think it's because democracy is so important uh, to me and to and uh, to all of us and to see it physically attacked at at, at the seat of democracy um was was just it was so hard to watch and then of course we didn't even see the worst of it until later until and, and there's still videos that are coming out right. uh, that right. hadn't been released because obviously they were part of open and ongoing investigations and um then you know we watched the impeachment 2.0 right. <laughs> uh and and that video that they showed um was just it it was devastating it was very hard to watch
0: And it must be particularly hard for you also for what you've been through personally, but but then also the the number of um, individuals with military backgrounds who were involved in this, right?
2: Yeah, something like 10%. Um, there's been a lot of interesting studies on those who invaded the capital. And as it turns out, 86% men, most of them 35 to 45 years old. And most of them aren't from rural red areas. They're from right. blue areas. <clears throat> and it seems that the number one concern is what something, something that scholars call the great replacement, fear yep. of the great replacement, yep. that, that white men are going to very soon in this country be a minority. And they're just extremely uncomfortable with that, with that idea.
0: So where where do you go from here? You you've achieved I think so much, uh, and I have such high regard for the way you've uh, helped to elucidate the facts. You you're playing the role of a public educator. Uh, you've been courageous in standing up to um, direct attacks, uh, you know, in all kinds of dimensions in your life, um, and you've uh, raised money and articulated a position as an alternative and as a hopeful future for our country. Uh, but of course, there's a lot of work to be done. So, so where do you go from here?
2: Um, m- well, my goals here are just to continue to widen the audience and spread the word. Um, I'm working on a book, and um, we'll be going back out on the road now that you know things are starting to open up again. Uh, to to. Basically, and, and, you know, with the Daily Beans. Now, Mueller, she wrote, has come back. We've brought that podcast back because so much Mueller news is bubbling up to the surface again now that we have somebody reasonable running the Department of Justice. Uh, and, and so I'll continue to cover that information. It, it wasn't over when the Mueller report came out and because it takes so long, because justice takes so long. And sometimes we have to settle. You know, I didn't get to uh, prosecute my rapist, but when I watch these Harvey Weinstein hearings, I I feel a little justice by proxy. And I think we're going to have to, I I, I want to help people um, sort of be prepared for not getting to see Trump have cuffs slapped on him and pulled out of, uh, you know, Bedminster or whatever. Although it could happen. Uh, But, you know, I just, I want I want us all to be there for each other when we don't quite get the justice that we want, but perhaps we get the justice that we need.
0: And and you think that's important for democracy?
2: Yeah, I think one of the most important things is accountability here. Uh, and I hope Merrick Garland and the Department of Justice do the right thing, particularly with the obstruction of justice charges that Mueller testified to saying that he could be prosecuted after he leaves office. Right. Surprised the heck out of Ken Buck when he asked that question, too. And um when he testified, but I think that accountability, and you know, I've talked to some of my uh, other colleagues and, and people I've had on the show, like Joyce Vance and Barb McQuaid, um and some former US attorneys and, and people like that, who say you know number one thing we have to do to restore trust that the Department of Justice is doing justice is accountability. That's step one. We have to shine light on all this. And and my whole goal here is to get everyone, as many people as I can, to be loud enough to pressure the Department of Justice, the Senate, the House to do the right thing.
0: Yes. I can't think of anything more important for every citizen to be thinking about. Uh, as a historian, I'll simply add that throughout our history, it has been public activists, some who think of themselves as activists, some who don't, uh, who have been responsible time and again for pushing our government to expose uh, all kinds of misdeeds and to inform the public and after informing the public then to provide the tools for the Justice Department and other elements of law enforcement to act. It's so crucial. Uh, justice doesn't just happen on its own. It, 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 require, it requires foot soldiers. We're all foot soldiers in some ways uh, for that. And, and we have a long historical tradition. You don't have to be a journalist. You don't have to be a, a Bob Woodward to be doing this, uh, though in, in a certain way, I think of you, Allison, as as the uh, the Bob Woodward or Seymour Hirsch of the twenty first century. Do you embrace that label? As
2: <laughs> well, soon as I uh, you know let that settle through the filter of my imposter syndrome, I'll <laughs> let you know how I feel about it. Uh, but you know Timothy Snyder, number two in yes. his book on tyranny, is to defend institutions. I picked yep. one, and I'm going to continue to defend it. And you know I think a lot about. Uh, what was his name? The Pentagon Papers, Ellsworth,
0: uh, Ellsberg, Daniel Ellsberg.
2: Ellsberg. Um, I think a lot about a lot about him and a lot of the journalists and, and members of the Fourth Estate, independent and otherwise. You know these these uh, osint researchers. You know some people call them internet sleuths, yep. sedition hunters. The, these are open source uh, intelligence re- researchers that have helped catch a lot of these insurrectionists. The, 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 those are my people, <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> you know?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And and sometimes the evidence is hiding in plain sight, isn't it? It's right <laughs> in front of us, right? Don't never discount the importance of the obvious. <laughs> um, <laughs> Zachary, uh, as, a, as a young person who is deeply concerned about all of the uh, topics, personal and political, that Alison discussed uh, and shared with us uh, with such honesty and authenticity, uh, do you... Do you find this inspiring? Do you think there are lots of listeners your age and around your age who will be inspired to go out and do more of what Alison is doing?
1: I think so. I think there's already a movement among young people um, to, to do things like host podcasts and have discussions amongst their peers and, and speak truth to power, but also have conversations with power. And I think that, that that all of these new technologies pose a threat to our democratic discourse, but also make it more egalitarian and more open to young people.
0: So I'm going to close, Zachary, by asking you and Alison the same question. And what, what's the one thing you would want concerned young listeners to start doing that they might not be doing. Zachary, and then we'll, then we'll turn to Allison on that.
1: Well, I think uh, one thing people uh, need to do is they need to start um, reading a lot and then not just reading uh, books that are uh, on topic or, or seem particularly relevant, but reading novels and, and works of philosophy and others that, that, that may, may seem tangential, but really have have a lot to bear on our situation and, and bring a lot of important perspective I think that's one of the most important things you can do.
0: Sure, being well read so that you can contextualize and make sense of the the barrage of facts in our present day. Allison, maybe we can close with your suggestion. If there's one thing you could, you know, have our young listeners start doing that would help you and help the cause of democracy.
2: Um, yeah, yeah. To build on on Zachary's idea of an educated electorate, um, I had a, a great discussion with a, a young. Voter rights activist named Santiago Mayer. Um, he's an immigrant. He's 19 years old, and he's just so active in the community. Uh, and and I think the most important thing, at least from what I garnered from the, my conversation with him and other young activists, is to get involved locally in your election process. Do you know your your boards of education, your city council, uh, to and and to register to vote and to really. Sort of because I think when we become active locally, that that sort of trickles up to the national level, and I think that that is where we have to start because those are the policies that impact us the most directly, and uh, I think that uh, I think that, that that young people really understand that, know it. It's more tangible and concrete for them, and they can really get involved at that level.
0: That's such good advice. Uh, you know, It, it, it evokes the, the famous statement by Tip O'Neill, right? All politics is local and all change is local. There's no doubt that throughout our history, all the great movements uh, from suffragists' activities to progressivism to the New Deal, they all began at the local level and they all began with the young people. And uh, Alison, you, you provide the fact basis, you provide the framework, uh, you provide the energy, the humor, but most of all the realistic hope now, that's the phrase i think about when i think about you that you're you're bathing yourself in the realism of the difficulties of our time but you find hope in working your way through that and sharing that with others and i think that kind of hope can be expressed in all of our local communities and then as you say filter on up to the top so uh Thank you for all that you do, Allison, and thank you for spending a little time with us. I know you probably have like 16 other things to do <laughs> right now uh, and more people to expose, more bad behavior by Trump to expose. That'll keep you busy a while longer. But we're, we're just so delighted and inspired uh, to have you on our, on our podcast. Thank you so much.
2: Yeah, thank you. And if you're into that hopeful message, um, the, another one of my 8,000 shows is called Clean Up on Isle 45. And I think oh. that you would really enjoy it.
0: I, I have to listen to that myself. I am a big fan, and I hope all of our listeners, if they're not already, will be listening to Muller She Wrote, and The Daily Beans. And then w- w- one more time, that the, the one you just mentioned, Alison? Oh,
2: Clean Up on Aisle 45. <laughs>
0: clean Up on Aisle. I'm going to check that one out as soon as we're done today. Uh, Zachary, thank you for your poem, as always, and for your insights. And most of all, thank you to our loyal listeners. Thank you for joining us for this episode of This Is Democracy.